Do you know him? If you don't, he's going to tell us all about who he is. As we're going through the, the book of John, looking at the statements that Jesus makes about himself. And he will say, I am such and such. I am this and I am that. Someone once said that there are 256 names in the Bible for Jesus. Describing him in all the different ways. And he just heard just a few of them on the video. And whenever Jesus would try to describe himself, it just seemed to make people around him upset. Because the words he would use would be the words that they would use to describe God, their Father in heaven. And they knew it was coming every time he began to say, I am. That's the words that, that God gave as his own name, I am. Over and over again, Jesus would say that the words, I am. And there was no doubt that he believed he was who he said he was. There's no one else who is I am. And because Jesus would say, I am, you better believe that he was. He can supply everything he's ever promised. He is our king. He is our God. Now, I've seen it on Facebook, so that obviously gives it some validity, right? That, that uh, science says that we need four basic elements to survive. The first is this, water, air, light, food and light. So those four things we need. And Jesus said, I am the living water. I am the breath of life. I am the bread of life. And I am the light of the world. Getting to know Jesus kind of helps sustain us in this life until the life that is yet to come. Sometimes when we think we know people, really we're mistaken about who they are. It, it, it makes our human nature to try and identify what people are like by either our outward observations. We see the clothing they wear, we see the hairstyle they have, we listen to their voice and the dialect that they speak from, and we then immediately kind of give a context as to who they are and what they're like. Have you ever been mistaken for somebody? I have. Uh, back in Versailles, there was a superintendent of our school district there in, in Morgan County, and Jeff Carter was his name. He has since passed, but he and I were often mistaken as one or the other. I mean, it, it was uncanny. I'd be at a baseball game, and a parent would come over to me wanting to chew me out because of whatever was going on in school, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not the superintendent. You need to talk with him. Or he would find people that would come to him in the community and ask him for prayer. But we had this great thing going, and, and sometimes you don't even have to be in the country when somebody's going to mistake you for the other person. I was in Ukraine back in 2006, and my wife was walking across the cafeteria at the school, and she saw Jeff Carter over there, and she thought it was me. But it's not just my wife, because I was walking down the hallway, and Jeff's wife was walking down the hallway from the other end, and she looked at me, and she yelled, Jeff, come here a second, thinking that I was Jeff. We looked a lot of like, but we would tell each other, you know, hey, we're just brothers, right? And so we would call each other brother. Then some of the kids in the school began to think that we were related. One day I was substitute teaching in the middle school, and these kids were there. They're, they're like, <clears throat> so you're, you're his brother, aren't you? I'm like, no, I'm not his brother. To be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not his brother. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No. And it went like that for quite a few minutes, and they're just making sure that I am. I said, okay, okay, really, we are brothers. Oh, yeah? Then why is your names different? <laughs> we have different fathers. Oh, okay. 
And they went, they went, and then I said, no, no, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. I, I, I'm not Jeff Carter's brother. And then he would happen to have the audacity at that moment. I don't know if he was listening in, but he opened up the door to the classroom. He said, hey, brother, how you doing? And he shut the door and he went on. <laughs> Sometimes people think they know who we are. But they might be deceived. Appearances can be deceiving. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, this little bitty town up in the, the northern area of the mountains. But it was an insignif insignificant community which he lived. It was a small town, and really, it, there was nothing great about it. So much so that when Philip was going to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus... And he's describing him, and he says, well, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? The Messiah, he can't be from there. We know he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. But there it were. They knew that he had earthly parents. Joseph, who worked in the textile trades, he was a carpenter. And his, his mother Mary, and there's been rumors that she was pregnant before they got, you know, were, were married but we know that she had conceived by the blessing of the Holy Spirit and Jesus came into the world as a result of that blessing. They were poor. And we know that they were poor because during the time there was great difficulty for them. They made their trip down to, the, to sacrifice in Jerusalem, but all they could purchase for their sacrifice were a couple of doves. Now those doves were only used for people who were poor rather than those who had a lot of money. We understood that Jesus was the oldest of many children in that household. The Bible tells us in Matthew 13, the names of four brothers, and he had other sisters as well. So he was the oldest in that family when it comes to the kids. We also know that by all appearances, there sure wasn't anything special about this man. Even, even the, the Nazarene dialect maybe gave it away that he probably wasn't going to be very special. He was just from a, a blue-collar family, poor living his life, and as we discussed last week from the book of Isaiah, he probably wasn't even very good looking. There was nothing about him that was attractive and would draw people to him when it came to his stature and his physical appearance. I have no idea really what Jesus looked like physically. But we want him to have been a very beautiful person, don't we? Because when people are beautiful, they're just right. But Jesus wasn't. He wasn't that beautiful man. Well, the people of Israel, especially the religious leaders, they had a picture in their mind's eye as to what the Messiah, the Christ, should be like. And Jesus, he wasn't it. He's not who they wanted. He's not who they would have dreamed up. He is exactly not who they were. He is just some poor carpenter's son from Nazareth. And they judged Jesus with an earthly measuring stick. And it's why he tells them something about himself in this passage of scripture we're going to look at to today in, in John chapter 8. He says, well, I'm from above. I'm not of this world. You really don't know much about who I am or where I come from. And yet they knew that he grew up in Galilee, and if they'd done their research, they might have discovered that really he was born in Bethlehem, according to the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he would be born there, and he would be born in the city of David, and he is also a descendant of King David by his lineage. But Jesus' place of origin was beyond their 
understanding. He really isn't even from Bethlehem. He is from heaven. Which also gives us another identity as to who he is, because he'll begin to talk about this throughout his ministry. He is the one who actually created the heavens and the earth. He is the word that was spoken, that all things came into existence. And so John lays that out in the very first chapter of his gospel, and Paul speaks about that when he writes to the churches, that everything that has been created in this world was created in Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. There was nothing in all creation that has been made apart from him. But they don't recognize that in him. In John chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, John gives this identity of Jesus. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was and is creator of all things. He is God in the flesh. He is not from here. He is not a created being. He is the creator. Now, I think there's some questions we need to ask as we kind of go through our text today. The first one is this. What are we looking for in a Savior? I mean, what is it that you look for in a Savior? I mean, you're looking for somebody who stands head and shoulders taller than everybody else, somebody who's mighty and powerful, and when he speaks, everything happens. Are you looking for somebody who's never going to die, that his kingdom is going to last, and he's going to reign upon his own throne forever and ever? I mean, that's who they were looking for. And they knew that Jesus could not have been that man. They knew where he was from. Or did they? See, <clears throat> how about having a Messiah who loves only certain people? Or the people that you love? You know, that, that you want to be in favor with? Understand it's not easy recognizing a Savior when he shows up. They were blinded by their own preconceptions of who he should be and what he should be like. And after all, it's just he doesn't fit what they thought that he would be like. It's not just the Pharisees of old that had an idea of what the Savior of the world should be like. Matter of fact, there are people even in church today who have their own opinion of what Jesus should be like. And sometimes the one in the Bible doesn't fit our imagination, does it? Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 8. <clears throat> and we're going to read from 12 to 23. As Jesus is describing who he is, and they just don't quite understand that. Beginning in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now stop a second. They, they knew that, that there had to be at least two people that testify about something in court. And, and you couldn't be one that testified about it. It had to be somebody else. But Jesus says, well, hang on a second. He answers, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, 
but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, well, where is your Father? And Jesus answered them, well, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot go. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. They just don't get it. I mean, he even uses that same statement, basically, when Pilate has him standing before him as he's facing his own crucifixion. And Pilate says, hey, they say you're a king. Are you really a king? And if so, where is your kingdom? And he says, you don't have to worry about that. I am a king, but my kingdom is not in this world. And as a result of that, Pilate says, I can't find any accusations against him. He's an innocent man. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That's something we need to understand. Jesus speaks of his heavenly nature and his origin in contrast to these guys who are arguing and debating with him about who he is. Jesus says he is from above and not of this world. Now, in his statement... He lays out his reason why he should go back to heaven and why they can't come. And they don't understand the meaning of his words. Why? Because they have sin within their life. And he's going to go where he came from eventually. But they can't go. Because they're still in their sins and they're going to die. You cannot enter heaven on your own terms. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus wants them to understand that. You have to be sent. Jesus was sent by God. He didn't come of his own volition. God sent him in this world to accomplish his purpose and his task. And so the Pharisees are asking that question, well, who are you? Who is your father? They just don't know. So he answers them by saying, well, the one who sent me into this world is the father. And I'm on his earthly mission of revealing who he is. And so he states the truth about what he's doing here. And it's to expose God to the world so they understand everything about him. And he's been doing that since the very beginning of his ministry. Telling them about the kingdom of heaven and about God. Now there are four questions I think that we need to answer if we're really going to see Jesus as Messiah, as a Savior. If we're going to see him as from above. So here's the first question. How does Jesus look at people? I mean, that's an important question we need to ask. Let me give you some background to the text today. Just at the very beginning of chapter 8, there's something that takes place there in the temple courts. As Jesus is speaking, he's interrupted. He's there teaching in the treasury, and these Pharisees and scribes, they come dragging a woman in before him, and they throw her down there, and they say, Jesus, we've caught this woman in adultery. Now, the law of God says that she should be stoned. I mean, that's what Moses has written for us. And then they say, so what do you say? What do you say? They're trying to get him stuck. 
Luke 19.10 records for us that Jesus had told his followers why he came from above. So in Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So while the Pharisees have this object lesson before him and they're trying to prove their point, Jesus sees a woman who is broken. He sees a woman who is lost and she needs to be found. He sees a woman who has created such a lifestyle that has taken her so far away from God that she needs to be restored into a right relationship with him. So Jesus sees an individual who needs a Savior and redemption. Jesus always sees through eyes of redemption, even when he looks at you and me. He recognizes that we could be drugged before somebody else and say, this man's been caught in sin, what are we going to do? There needs to be some form of punishment, but Jesus always sees a transformation of our lives into something that's going to be different than where we are. Religious people, however, they always seem to be concerned about the punishment, at least for this woman. But where's the man? If she was caught in adultery, where's the man? Why just her? So Jesus bends down. He begins to, to write something with his finger in the, in, the, in the dirt there. And as he's writing, he looks up and he says, Well, whoever is without sin, any of you who haven't sinned yet, you guys go ahead and throw the first stone. But then he continues to write. And then John records for us what took place. As Jesus has just confronted them about their own sins and about throwing the stones, and we don't know what he was writing in, in the ground there. Maybe he was writing that, that John is a, is a lying, thieving crook. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, the gentlemen that were older there in that crowd, they began to walk away. Maybe he was writing their name down. <laughs> I don't want people to know what I've done. But whatever it was, eventually they're all gone. They have disappeared. And so as he bends down in John 8, 7, it says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And he continues that narrative in verses 8 and 9. He says, And once more he bent down and he rolled on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, Jesus never said what the woman was caught in the act of was okay. He wasn't saying what she did was, was all right, it should be dismissed. Or the man that was there either. He simply chose not to condemn her sin as worse than what the Pharisees' sins were as well. And he forgives her and he calls her to live a different way. Listen what he says to her in John 8, 10, and 11. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is exactly how Jesus looks at me. 
It's exactly how he looks at you. I don't know if you've seen his look that he's given you, but it's the way he looks at us. He knows we've got faults, and he knows that we have, we have chosen to do things that are ungodly, and he understands that. Condemnation will come, but he wants to offer something a little bit different. He wants to offer grace and mercy and freedom. Second question is this. So how does God, Jesus look at God's Word? Well, first off, we know He is the Word of God, right? So how does, he, how does He see it? I mean, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they studied the Word of God every day. They memorized it. They applied it in their lives. They did everything they could to make sure that they would be obedient to those things. So they even crafted little phylacteries that were little boxes in which they would put the Scripture in. They would tie it around their forehead or along their arm so it would go with them every day. And they would know, I am supposed to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But then somehow that got changed to saying, uh, you can't do any work on the Sabbath day. They even made a rule about how you can make this Sabbath day holy. You could not walk more than a mile from your house. Well, that was unless you took a stone from your house and you carried it a mile, then you sat it down. Then you could walk another mile. But there are always rules and regulations that they adapted and adopted for whatever their needs were, but yet tried to make sure that you stayed within the boundaries of the rules of the law. The Word of God became a textbook to prove how religious they are. The Word of God says that we are to love your neighbor, and they ask, well, who is my neighbor? They want to know who really is worthy of my love. Who, who should I love and who should I not love? It certainly doesn't mean that some Samaritan like Jesus hung out with or those, those prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners that he would have dinner with, does it? But Jesus saw the weary and the troubled. He wanted to provide them rest. He wanted to provide them an opportunity to change their lives. He saw the blind people and he gave them sight the lame, and he enabled them to walk on their own two feet. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He changed things in people's lives, even though it might be temporary. For the outcast, he invited them in. And he loved people. The Pharisees were more concerned about keeping their rules than they were caring for the people. Now, Jesus knew that eternal life is a gift that only he can offer. But somehow the Pharisees had it figured out that they could earn eternal life by making sure that they did exactly everything that the law said so we can earn our way to heaven. It's my paycheck for doing good as I get to go to heaven. But the Bible informs us that, no, your paycheck, the wage that you earn... It's because of your sin, and unfortunately, it's not eternal life, it's death. Now, I want you to hear me. Obedience to the law is very important, okay? It doesn't mean we can skirt our way around those things. We need still to be obedient to the Word of God. You've got to apply it in your life daily. That's very important. But you are not going to get to heaven on your own merit and on your own good deeds, 
The only way you're going to get to go to heaven is through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and by putting your faith in God's one and only Son, whom he sent from above into this world for us. Jesus, however, found out that he was hated by the religious leaders because he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier things and matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, you ought, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But he calls them blind guides, and he says, you're trying to strain out a gnat so that you don't eat it in your food. But the problem is, you're swallowing a camel. You're trying to be nitpicky about things and don't realize the big things that you're doing that are so wrong and unjustifiable in your lives. You see, God loves people, and it's why he gave his word as a guide for us. Jesus, Messiah, lived out this truth as the word of God, and he, he displayed that as he became flesh, and he lived amongst us. That's what John tells us. Now, there's a third question as well that we need to ask about Jesus. How does Jesus look at God's house? Because that's where they were. They were in the temple courtyards there in the treasury area, which was outside by the women's court. And the Pharisees, boy, they loved their building. And this was a marvelous building that, that Herod the Great had built. Now, Herod was a marvel architecture. Some of the things that he has crafted and created, it, it, it's, it boggles your mind how he was able to figure these things out. And yet he did. And he made this beautiful temple. Now, Solomon's temple was gorgeous, but Herod's temple had to be even bigger. And so he expanded it to them. Now, the Pharisees at this day in Jesus' time, they loved that temple that they had there in Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, it says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. It was that statement there that he makes that they bring as an accusation against him so they can crucify him. And they're looking at this saying, who is this guy? How can he destroy this temple in three days? Do you know how many years it took Herod to build this temple and you think you can then turn around and rebuild it in three days? There's no way. This is all blasphemous that you're going to do. And so they use that against him. The religious leaders, they wanted Jesus gone. And that's what it came down to. So they conspired, they plotted, they schemed, they, everything that they did. They paid an insider by the name of Judas how to, to betray him and surrender him over to them. They found false witnesses so that when they did put him on trial, they would stand up and say, oh, I heard him say this, and I saw him do this. And, and they were going to accuse him and put him forward so that they could crucify him. And they put pressure on the Roman governor so he would crucify him as well. Jesus was viewed as the end of all their problems if they got rid of him. No wonder Jesus told them, you don't know where I came from. I come from above. I'm not of this world, but you are. Now, the religious leaders, they thought messiahs don't die on crosses. Matter of fact, even if we put him on a cross, he could come down. Because this Messiah that God has promised us is never going to die. And his, his kingdom is going to be here for, forever. And his throne is going to be an eternal throne that he's going to sit upon. So it doesn't matter what happens. If Jesus really is Messiah, then even if we crucify him, he won't die. He'll come down off the cross. 
But they didn't know his purpose and his plan, did they? Jesus was something different. So how did Jesus look at the cross? In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus records this commitment to the cross. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. They were falling right into his plans. And they thought he was falling into theirs. They're going to get rid of this guy. But he knew that there was one purpose and it was to go there. Jesus saw the cross as something different. Rather than his death, he saw it as your salvation. He had one purpose to go to that cross. And that was you. Now it doesn't matter if everybody else in the world through all history has, has sinned and we've all died. If you're the only one who was perfect, I don't know if that would happen. I think there'd be some place that you're going to mess up. Scripture says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's reverse it. Let's say that everybody has been perfect and nobody has ever sinned except you. Jesus would still go to the cross for just you. You are his reason that he gave his life. I am the reason he gave his life. Now, if you dig into the books of Exodus and Leviticus, you'll discover that it's overwhelming to think about having to fulfill all the sacrificial rules and regulations and duties and opportunities to, to get your sins forgiven. But the problem was the sins were not forgiven. They were just kind of rolled back year after year. And then to think that even though you can't make it and be perfect and a holy God requires you to be, that's just unfair. What happens if I did something accidentally and it's classified as sin? It doesn't matter. But listen what Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there's a, there's a reminder of sins every year. I mean, for it's impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I want to stop a second. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Then why are we offering up the sacrifice of bulls and goats and using their blood upon our sins if it's not going to take them away? Because God has something better. So listen. Consequently, in verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. I mean, these are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So he's going to nullify the first covenant of a sacrifice and he's going to establish another covenant between God and us of one sacrifice. Right? So he says, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made footstools for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those or being sanctified. So how does Jesus see the cross? He sees the cross as a new covenant, as a new contract between God and man so that his body would be the sacrifice for you so you don't have to die and eternally face the punishment of wrath of God. But have your sins finally forgiven where the bulls and the goats and their blood could not forgive your sins, the blood of Jesus can so without the cross, there is no salvation. There's no salvation without the cross of Christ. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and all sin, all guilt, all shame, all, all has been paid by His blood once for all, for every sin, for all time. The song says, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow you see it's God alone who forgives and it's Jesus who is claiming that he is God when he says I am now look again at John 8 23 and 24 <clears throat> He said to them, you are from above, below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that, he says, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now verse 24 says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that word he is really not in the original scripture language. It just simply says, unless you believe that I am. You're going to die in your sins. It's the same name that, that God gives Moses when Moses says, well, who shall I tell him sent me? And God says, tell them I am. And when Jesus makes the statement here, he is proclaiming himself to be the one from above. I am. Mere man cannot save other men because they have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But God promises to save us. And by His grace and by His mercy 
and by our faith in Him, in believing in the one whom He has sent, Jesus, it includes the highest possible view of Christ as Messiah. Jesus is Lord. He is King. And He is I Am. But John 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now when Jesus uses that title, Son of Man, he's speaking about himself. That's one of his favorite names about himself. He didn't walk around saying, I'm King, I'm Lord, I'm you know, the Son of God. He would say, I'm the Son of Man. And that's also an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, the one who was to come, would be classified and called the Son of Man. But he says here, he uses this play on words when he says, lift up. And it points to the type of death that Jesus would face. That he would be put on the cross. Now that idea of lift up is going to accomplish the highest glory of his earthly visit, why he came here. Normally the Greek word for lift up, it means to lift up on high or to exalt. And metaphorically it means to raise to the very summit of opulence and prosperity. To raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. And he's saying, if you're going to lift me up on the cross, in reality what's happening is you are lifting me up and proclaiming me to be the one, the great I am. But Jesus would complete his work on the cross, and the Jews and the rest of the world will know, he says, that I am I guess maybe there's another question we ought to ask ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you see him as the one from above? As the great I am? If not, you've got a poor image of who he is. Because he truly is from above.